All right, welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Thank you for those across the United States and the world who have provided excellent feedback and it continues to just make my day. Anytime I hear a listener uh, say something or send something to me, it makes it all worth it. So for those listening on SoundCloud, Spotify, our YouTube channel, any other podcast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, I continue to say thank you, and you might get sick of me saying that, but it's not because I'm disingenuous. It's just because this always is worth it. It's always worth it. So thank you for the continued feedback, uh, criticism, uh, likes, comments, or reviews. If there's any questions that you have for the show, any suggestions for a topic or a guest, feel free to email those to wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Alrighty, so I have been in this this place with my congregation over the last couple weeks was right before Holy Week and leading up to Holy Week. We were asking ourselves three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And then finally, what is our response to him? Because how you answer those questions is pretty much going to dictate your, your Christian walk or lack thereof, mind you whether you're religious or not, what we're going to end up doing with Jesus is the ultimate question, right? We can talk about God. We can use this universal language of God. We can even soften God or mold him or her or it into whatever we want. But when you start saying specific words like Jesus, that gets it very, very narrow. It's a narrow picture because Jesus was an exclusive truth claim. He claimed to be the true son of God. And of course, Anyone can claim that. It's just how in the world would you meaningfully sustain said claim? That's very difficult. And we believe, you know, as Christians, we testify to that truth. Now, one of the things that is interesting about the the questions, those three questions I asked earlier about Christ, is how those change post his resurrection. Now that we're in Easter tide, we can still ask ourselves who is or was Jesus, what did he actually come to do, and now what is our response to him? But instead of you know talking to him like, who is Jesus? Well, he's the promised Messiah, the Son of God. He came here to uh, bring reconciliation to the world, and our response to him is that we follow him. Well, we can still a- ask those same questions, but now with a different spin because he's conquered the grave. He's made the gospel you know approachable by all of the rest of us Gentiles or all of creation being reconciled back to him. Well, what are we doing with him in his resurrection? That's what Easter tide is. And as we look at the disciples at the end of the books of Matthew and in Mark, when they're given the great commission, and then you're seeing the Holy Spirit being breathed upon them before Pentecost. So they go out and spread the gospel. Then the rest of the Holy Spirit's given at Pentecost. What's interesting is that there's this rebuke that happens in the gospel of Mark which is fascinating to me that gets overlooked. It's in the Gospel of Mark. Now, it is in the disputed passages in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, but there are far more documents out there that that testify to the claim that those verses are actually real. They're, they're credible. They're not there by mistake. So that, that's a whole other argument. There can almost be a podcast in and of itself on that very thing. But... I digress. I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. You can do your own research and you can find out that it is credible. But in those things that you have Jesus come in, he's amongst them, but then he rebukes them specifically for them not believing 
you know, what he, what he actually um, said, which I, I found is, is not, it's just not something that I actually thought was in scripture. And as I read this for you now, just think about this, you know, from, from Jesus' perspective, he had told the disciples what was going to happen. And uh, th- this is something that, that you no, know, for them, it's like, don't, don't you see, don't you see this at all? Don't you see this happening? And, and this is what uh, happens, you know, in, like I said, in the book of Mark. And as I read uh, 16 uh, uh, for you, listen to what this says. It says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. That's the Emmaus Road story. And then verse 13 continues, these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. So there's this trust issue that's happening amongst the disciples. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. What an interesting passage to read. I mean, after all of that time, that these people who had walked each other, walked with each other, you know, for years, who had seen Christ suffer, they're scattered. But if they remember his teachings, their rabbi's teachings, their master, their friend, and you had people saying to them, like, hey, this happened. But they're like, no, no, we're not going to trust the women. We're not going to trust these two guys who Jesus appeared to. You can go read that uh, in other gospel passages. The Gospel of Luke passage specifically. What what's fascinating is that you have this mistrust in in these these guys' lives, and that type of mistrust that happens today in the church, right? That we're godly people don't trust other godly people. Either we're not giving them the benefit of the doubt, or we're not trusting their motive. And motive is huge here. Is that you know we're flawed people. We we are humans. We're gonna mess up. We're gonna make mistakes. We are going to commit sins against one another, but it's how we recover. But if if we have people in our lives who are Christ-like, reflecting back those traits that, that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruits of the Spirit. So instead of debauchery, instead of uh, giving over to envy and slander and, and seeds of dissension, we are practicing love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then there is a trust there with our motives, maybe not with the application sometimes where we're just wrong or where we just need to be like, hey, we need to take a step back. We need that person that's going to rebuke us and be there for us, hold us accountable, call us higher and, and holiness. But if there is a, hey, I don't trust your motive now or your trust has been broken because I don't think you're coming from a holiness perspective. I mean, that is harsh. And when that happens amongst the church people, why in the world would other people want to come to our church? Why would we want to invite people in to a distrustworthy environment and atmosphere or culture, if you will? I've used this with my congregation before, but you know, if, if the church is a house, but it's a mess, there's no place for people to eat. We're coming in and uh, we're, excuse me, we're asking people to come in and dine with us, but yet the table isn't set. I mean, can you imagine if you went over to dinner someplace, someone you were invited over to your friend's house and you got there and there was nothing prepared? 
So it was almost as if, not that they were lying to you, but they weren't prepared for what they were inviting you for and to. It's a simple metaphor, but for me, I always found effective because it demonstrates motive and purpose. Why are we here? I thought we were here to eat, but obviously there, there's a miscommunication somewhere. But as a church, if we're inviting people in when we are sowing seeds of dissension amongst one another, what are we effectively teaching those other people, those new Christians or the, the not the unconverted yet? What do they think? We're, we're just no different from the world. We're just selling something like every other thing. We just put a different face on it. We're rebranding, if you will. But the problems still exist. And I'm not saying that there aren't reasons to take pause and question, by no means. Because Paul gives us that litmus test there in Galatians chapter 5. He says, if you're seeing this, that's not the people of God. But if you're seeing this, this is by the Spirit. And the Spirit is antithetical to the flesh. They contradict one another. And if someone says they're a Christian, but they're doing these awful things, you can say, hey, I don't know where you're at, but that is not Christian because you can look at their actions. But if you have a brother or sister you simply disagree with on, just things of life and they're not theological, and that is sowing seeds of distrust and dissension, that, that's not a godly thing. Not saying that it's not important. I'm not trying to be dismissive of what the content is or the application by no means. But what's the greater narrative? See, when you attack someone's motive, that's huge. That is huge. Especially if you're with godly people and you know they're a Christian, there's a, that's a totally different way of handling things. But if we just throw mud at each other all the time, or we're right fighters and we have to be right no matter what. Where's the role of trust? Where's the role of the Holy Spirit? Is it more about us at that point? That maybe if only somebody were to believe what I believe and what I think, then everything would be better. There's like this conditional statement or this or this vendetta or uh, on saying, well, you know, I I have to have it this way or else. Is that more about you? Where's the kingdom in that? And all these things, in my mind, on the human level, you can see and maybe you know, kind of realize that that's what the disciples went through. They were not superhumans. They were just like us. They were being told to believe something miraculous, obviously. Something we could label as illogical or irrational. It comes back to what are we doing with Jesus? What do we believe about his resurrection? And they had people in their lives that were testifying to this truth saying, hey, our master, our rabbi, he did everything he said he was going to do. We can trust this. And they're like, no, sorry. Even Thomas, who gets a bad rep, but I don't know if he's any worse than us, saying unless I feel the holes in his hands and the holes in his side, then I'll believe. And what's amazing about that is that even through our failings, our doubts, Jesus doesn't stop. I wouldn't say Jesus rewards the doubting because he actually commands Thomas to stop doubting at the end of uh, that John passage in John chapter 20. He actually tells him to stop doubting and believe. And when Thomas decries that, that statement, 
you know, my Lord and my God. And he says, blessed are you because you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Giving credit, not just maybe to those who will come after, because it's always about us, right, in the Bible, but those in that very day who chose to believe and had not seen. Like the women, for example. Some of the women. I don't know. What are we doing as a church body, as a, as a church people? If we all believe the same thing, we worship the same God, and our application's a little bit different, our interpretation's a little bit different, but yet we hate each other, we're no different than the world. We have no credibility. And it's no wonder people don't want to come into our churches. It's no wonder. Because we're not trusting each other's motives. We're not giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Or maybe sometimes, as we say, assume positive intent. That's a stretch for me sometimes because I think the actions would say otherwise. Sometimes. I'll say sometimes because I think sometimes people tell you who they really are. You just have to listen. You have to shut your own mouth to listen, right? Sometimes people will reveal their true character. If you give them enough rope, so to speak, they'll hang themselves. But for those who just, we simply disagree, is it more about us? Where's God? And I'll leave us on the same question that I've, I've asked my congregation now for months, months on end. They are getting sick of it. Who is at the center of our lives? Is it my own will or is it God's? And as we celebrate Christ and his resurrection, I don't want us to forget the important point. As he was in the garden, in the very human moment, asking for the cup to be taken from him, he was still able to say the words, but not my will, thy will be done. That is what our attitude ought to be in everything that we say and do, and that includes our closest friendships and our family relationships in our lives. We have to be willing to lay ourselves down because ultimately this is, I mean, our relationships are supposed to reflect the kingdom anyway. And that's the other thing too. If, if you're feuding with somebody right now, if there's difficult things going on in your lives or you're, you're arguing with people on social media, sowing seeds of dissension, just remember that if you're both Christians and you both believe that, you know, if you both end up in heaven because it's God's decision, not ours, just remember you're going to be reconciled in heaven anyway. Why not be reconciled here and have a living testimony to pass on for generations to come? Trust. It's built on Christ and we're running towards him and our gaze is fixed upon him. Our relationships will reflect the holy things of the kingdom. I promise you that. Well, thank you guys. As always, appreciate you. I love you. May God bless you and may God keep you.